for a lot of white fans, Prince was just basically their erotic myth child. He wasn't a real person. The music, the festivals, in order for it to be as powerful as it can be, yes. those people coming to those festivals have to be some kind of way have seeds laid into them. Mm. They are ready to see the wholeness of the artist and not just the artist as something that dispenses something that's pleasant to them. Stand up, organize. Still matter. Like books and black lives, albums still matter. Welcome to Us Fest. I'm Brian Bakunin. I am Susie Baumchop. This is the Democracy Party Podcast. The mission of Us Fest is to party progressives into political power by amplifying voices of conscience who rarely break through the corporate news filter, exploring how music, art, comedy, and culture can and must revive and transform democracy to, to save, save the, the world, world from, from fascist, fascist annihilation. Since the road to fascism is paved with militarism, submission to authority, and irrational jingoism, and democracy is strengthened through art, music, comedy, and culture, Usfest is a playground where we have spellbinding conversations with artists, activists, and scholars whose work is rooted in consciousness, love, and justice. Because Susie and I have noticed that most humans that we know have had cathartic experiences with music, art, film, comedy, and most everybody alive has had at least one life-affirming experience at a concert or music festival. The reason why we love music festivals and gatherings where music plays a central role is due to the potential power of music to open minds and hearts and strengthen humanity. And we see again and again the opportunity to bring diverse people together to gain empathy and respect for each other in this multicultural, multiracial community building. But even white Black Lives Matter protesters like ourselves trying to do our part to eradicate racism have blind spots and biases that stand in the way of our aspirational hopes and goals, right? So in this episode, we're gaining a deeper insight into the legacy of my first rock god, Prince, as we're taking on a deep dive journey into the Prince studies of Professor C. Lee McInnes, who's a poet and author at Jackson State University. C. Lee and I both became Prince disciples right around the same age. And on this episode of Us Fest, we revisit our very unique, very individualized, life-shattering introductions to the artist. And it's our vastly different contexts that informed our wholly different perspectives of Prince. Yeah, Seeley expands our awareness of Prince as more than just Nib child. It's such a brilliant term for the mythologized Prince that so many white fans, and myself included, you know, saw him as for so long, which, as we'll learn, was a monster that Prince was guilty of creating himself <laughs> to some degree. So, And only an intellect on the 
level of Professor McInnes can kind of unpack that mythology and help us re-see Prince. <laughs> yeah, and helps us really appreciate Prince's evolution from, you know, a sexualized being to the powerful black nationalist he became. Yeah, so whether you want to hear two Prince fans of dramatically different backgrounds nerd out and connect on how we discovered Prince, I'm kind of jealous because Celie attended the infamous Dirty Mind tour at the very tender age of 10. <laughs> Dirty Mind, of course, the most controversial and filthy album ever recorded up until that point, or me sharing my story of the trouble I got into in elementary school by sharing Prince's lyrics all over the playground and with my fourth grade girlfriend's mom. Uh, or you're more interested in hearing this constructive dialogue about how we overcome systemic racism by embracing, as black and white progressives united, black sovereignty and self-determination, as Prince went on to do before his untimely passing. You should really stick around for it all because this is one of the greatest conversations I've ever had Professor McInnes. Hey, what's up, man? As the, I don't know if you are the central intellectual godfather of studying the lyrics and impact uh, of Prince, but it seems like you I might be. That, I would say that I'm one of the bricks in that foundation. You're quite a brick. You wrote the lyrics of Prince, the book that got you invited to Paisley Park for a meeting with Prince himself. So what was the impetus for this 632-page tome? When I wrote my book back in 96, hip-hop had completely taken over. Prince had been pushed out of the charts. Absolutely. And so I wrote my book because it was my artistic manifesto. But it was also, I just wanted to keep the conversation of why this dude was important. And unfortunately, it took him dying. I'm just glad that people can say, hey, man, your book back in 96 and then we redid it in 2000 really gave me some fire to do it. This book, you know, obviously long ago earned its place on the bookshelf of every serious Prince fan. But I can't put down this special Prince edition of Black Magnolias, the quarterly journal that you publish through psychedelicliterature.com. Um, so for Prince fans who... Maybe can't afford that Sign of the Times Super Deluxe 13 LP vinyl remaster for Christmas, but who want a brilliant compendium to the Spotify version of the album. <laughs> this is the penultimate Prince brain feed. Um, so what went into this Prince special? What I wanted to do was really try to blend academic with common cultural sensibilities. Mm, love it. I have noted college scholars, PhD people, popular cultural journalists. Yeah. I have a short story wow. writer, a undergrad student, and I have a grad student. I have one guy who's an MC. His article is about where hip hop and Prince merge. I have another guy who's an African-American rock guitarist. He's originally from Mississippi, but he lives out. He's a session musician in San Diego. And he talks about how Prince made it fashionable for black guys to pick the guitar up again. Well, kudos, because every contributor definitely walks that balance between scholarly prowess, but also easily accessible, you know, joyful reading. Um, I wanted to allow as many different types of folk discuss in a very serious, but also very accessible kind of way why Prince is important and why we should be studying him. Um, uh, so, Seeley, uh, beyond being a fellow Prince disciple, uh, you're an English professor, a poet. The Prince book is not 
your only one. You've authored eight, at least. Um, you were invited to the NAACP's inaugural poetry reading uh, for Obama's election. Did such enviable black excellence just happen naturally for you, or was there some mysterious Mississippi Delta force at work? I am a country boy. I always tell people I'm a blues baby. I was blues born, blues bred. When I die, I'm going to be blues dead. So I'm from uh, Clarksdale, Mississippi, home of the blues, Highway 4961, where the crossroads. Early this morning. Although we know Robert Johnson sold his soul somewhere else. When you knock upon my door. You just tell people that for the tourist money, that is Highway 4961. I, I grew up in the Delta. Early this morning. When you knock upon my door. Both my parents, HBCU, historically black college graduates, my mother, my father. And I said, hello, Satan. I believe it's time to go. And so I was just steeped in HBCU culture, blues culture. Both my parents were really big readers. And the devil. So I got the best of the country. What walking side by side. Basically blues, gospel, and lots of reading in my childhood. Me and the devil. What are some of the works that inspired you to be the creative force that you are? I always say that Amir Baraka's book, Blues People, mm. Blues People was the work outside of my parents' house. They said it's okay to love yourself and your people publicly and to take yourself and your people seriously in your academic and artistic work. So I always have to give a shout out. To, to that, and I also have to give a shout out to Columbia Salam's book, What Is Life? Uh, the Reclaiming of the Black Blues Self, because Columbia's book, What Is Life? He has seven points that define the blues aesthetic. And so if anybody's wondering what the blues aesthetic is and how the blues aesthetic has tentacles in the every other, I would say go pick up Columbia Salam's What Is Life? And you'll, you'll see that brilliant manifesto in that. Okay, great. So. I've known and loved Amiri Baraka's classic blues people uh, for decades, but not until right now, this very moment, had I ever heard of Kalamu Isalam's What is Life? Shame on me. So thanks for the introduction. I will be getting that for sure. Now, regarding Prince specifically, uh, were there any writers or biographers of note who inspired or presaged your Prince studies? One book I always give credit to is a book called Prince of Pop Life by Dave Hill. Dave Hill's Prince of Pop Life is the first book to address Prince in a serious manner in which okay. say, a popular cultural studies course would do. What year did that book come out? Do you know? 89. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so it's really it's, studying Prince's most seminal years. Uh, yeah. yeah. And he, like you said, he goes from Prince being five or six all the way until, so 89 would have been the uh, Bat Dance. Bat That's Man, right. Yeah. So I was reading that going, yep, you can do this seriously, right? Because at that time, mm. I was like 19, so I didn't really know about, you know, popular studies courses, right? I didn't really know that something like that existed. So here was though this guy writing about popular music and, you know, and maybe I'm biased cause I'm older, but coming up in the late seventies, early eighties, mm. when I was reading popular music criticism, it was being written by real scholars whether it was Rolling Stone, Upbeat, Musician Magazine, right. even in Ebony, music journalism, I would say from 75 till about 90, that's probably the best era of music journalism that ever existed. Where they're actually applying something more than catchphrases. They're exactly. actually 
Mm. In fact, they're bringing artistic theory to bear yeah. on the yeah. work that they're discussing. Wouldn't that be refreshing? I'd like to see a lot more of that. And Carol Cooper's, I want to say 1982, interview of Prince opened my world. Oh, my God. I mean, he, I, was he even doing interviews at that time? And, and that's the whole point. And it was what Carol Cooper does in that article is that I guess being an African-American female, mm. she was able to cut through the racial mythology that Prince was trying to build and basically said, no, nah, brother, you're going to talk to me like a black man trying to reclaim the full history of black music. Mm. <laughs> and it was yeah. like, you know, when you're dealing with somebody who ain't going to accept your BS, <laughs> that Prince's responses to her questions were 180 different to the responses to most of the other questions. Uh -huh. So that's why I always say that that Carol Cooper article on so many levels. So yeah, so reading all of that just really kind of helped pour into me, you know, the kind of writer, you know, that I became. Now I'm trying, I'm trying to fit this into my frame of reference because for me, the Eden of my youth was uh, my dad rewinding and replaying over and over again the Billie Jean Moonwalk Motown anniversary special in like right. 81 or 82. That moment, the Michael Jackson magic, right? I was like right at the age that Michael Jackson probably would have been sexually into me. But right. what happened? <laughs> What happened after that? Just, what, a year and a half later, my stepbrother, who's four years older than me, I'm nine years old, he comes down, shares with me the thing that would kill my fascination with Michael Jackson. My father opened the floodgates right. for, for the far more threatening gender-fluid black artist right. who, who he would then do everything possible to remove from my life because... Right. From the moment I, my brother played, and it wasn't even when doves cry, you know what it was, Celie? It was, it was Darling Nikki. Oh, and wow. when, and when he played that song for me, I'm nine years old, I'm way too young to be knowing right. what that shit was. Right. But when I learned the word from Prince, masturbation, masturbating, it just got deeper and right. darker. And I was like, wait a minute. The flip side of Let's Go Crazy is the dirtiest song ever recorded. And I was sharing that shit on the playground and like, right. and brother, that, the forbiddenness of Prince by adults only enthralled me to him more. He taught me the power of rebellion and indirectly taught me just how deep both, you know, homophobia and racism ran right. within, you know, my dad's line of the family because they reviled Prince like the demon and the exorcist, right? right? And so when he started mixing the sexual with the spiritual, right. it was just... Yeah, and, and, I, and I guess for me, it was, it was similar, but a little bit different in that. So... You went to the Dirty Mind concert in 1980 when you were nine. Up till then, the dirtiest album of all time. Like, how does that happen? <laughs> like, what well, the? It, it, I, I was a couple of things. So, yeah, music was music was as big in my father's household as literature. He believed in, like what Amir Baraka said, that music for black people was one of the few ways that they could freely express themselves. So you mm. can kind of know socio politically what's happening with them through the music. Right. right? And so th the whole notion of the sacred and the profane. Mm. particularly in black culture, that was a discussion that was always being had, right? The, 
the juke joint in the church that the guy who plays the piano at the cafe mm. walks across the street Saturday <laughs> Sunday morning goes plays at the, at the church. Now, my father would always say to the day he died, he said, okay, you can tell the story one way. At least just tell the whole story when I die. So in <laughs> truth, and I always tell him, I said, Pop, if I tell the story the way you want me to tell it, you don't look any better that way. So... <laughs> So he said, but he said, but you tell me about took you to see Chris over Brick Day. I said, well, you did. He said, yeah, but that wasn't the intent. So what really happened was <laughs> I gotta my, hear this. my uh -huh. father had, and this again gets in, gets in the, why for me, gender and these kind of things never. Mm. My father, so my father, he's living in Jackson. They divorced. He's living in Jackson. So he drives up to Clarksdale, <laughs> which is about a two and a half hour drive. He drives to Clarksdale. Memphis is 40 minutes from Clarksdale. So whenever my father would come to Clarksdale, he would go to Memphis to see his partner, Bo. Mm. Bo was a heterosexual male who had one of the most popular hair salons in Memphis. So Bo is using a hair salon, one to get money, and the <laughs> other to get women. Because usually when you think guy hair salon, of course, you think, of course. You know, yeah. But no, Bo was, so being around all my father's friends at a young age, these kind of rigid gender things just never even equated with me even before I got to Prince, right? So Bo and my father you know, have a friend that's a construction worker. And during those times, if you were a union guy, construction guy, and a, and a show was coming to town, you could go down and get work. Mm. So my father knew, knew the guys, hey man, he probably did the show. So, and you know, and, and my father knew Prince was, Bo did You say, well, uh, Big Daniel in town, man, he's probably working. So they go down, and I'll, I'm trying to remember if Bo went with us, but I remember, because I don't remember Bo being backstage. So they're still setting up. <laughs> so my father's talking to this guy, contract guy, they're talking, whatever, and I could smell the weed. By then I knew what weed smelled like, right? <laughs> so here's, where, here's what's funny. So somebody got the idea that, hey, maybe this kid shouldn't be back here while this construction is happening. <laughs> so they sent me to go sit in the front row, right? No and they forgot about me. No. So I'm sitting there 10 years old, right? <laughs> kind of milling about. Oh. And as I'm milling about, people are milling about, I know more and more people oh, are coming man. in, more and more people are coming in. And so all of a sudden, I'm thinking, I think Pop done forgot about me. But you know, you're a child, when you told sit down in the spot, you sit down. <laughs> and then the lights go off. Oh. So the lights go off, and the next Ooh. thing I hear is, ladies and gentlemen, Warner Brothers recording artist, Prince. Now, I knew of Prince, right? I knew of the the first two albums, right? Yeah, Wanna Be Your Afro Lover. Thing, yeah. You know, after the Afro. So I, you know, he was, you know. So the curtains open. This dude come out, and the first thing I went with is this dude got on draw. Like 10 years old, like he got him. And so women are going crazy. And I remember thinking, mama has no idea why she has no. <laughs> and when Prince goes in the head, I was sure, like, oh, yeah, I know mama don't know. And, but here, making that connection again. So a young lady next to me, so I'm 10, so I'm recognizing that she is, right? She's no more than 21. So when Prince goes in the head, this girl does something that I'd only seen at one other place in my life. <laughs> and that was church. Oh. This girl got oh. laid in the spirit and fell out and I went. And I remember that's the first time I made that secular, profane connection. I went. I went, why? I, I, I remember thinking she's having a spiritual experience. 
So from that moment, the whole merging of the sacred and the profane never, right? Because again, I had that background of mm. knowing about Ray Charles, knowing about Lil yeah. Richard giving up part of his career and trying to go, you know, trying to do the Christian uh, Marvin Gaye being conflicted over mm. the So I, I had that history that my mm. father was feeding me, but watching this girl literally fall out and get slayed, to be, to be so moved by this profane thing that her only reaction is what people normally do in the church. Mm. I just remember being 10 things. Now, back to the funny part, so that all happens. So then it's, it's Rick James' turn, and Rick James says, uh, that little pervert has perverted the stage. It's time to purify the stage, fired up, and joints look like fell from the sky. And I was like, Mama had no idea. He's a joint. Jesus, Jesus. Okay. All right. Look like confetti. Just okay. And so yeah, so that was my 10-year-old Prince opening for Rick James. My early end to Prince, and 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 then it just kind of. I mean, I mean, you know, you know, Celia, to compare again, I have to because you were, <laughs> you were fucking nine years old at the front row of the most yeah. controversial album ever right. released. You oh, know, well, I'm ten. I did my ten. 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 Yeah, big difference. Big I difference. Know, right, right. <laughs> so, I'm. I discovered, yeah, like the whole country when when Dove's Cry came out, it ended my Michael Jackson life and right. created this whole new god for me that uh, that then I just used as a weapon to right. prove to adults that I was on to them. You know right. what I mean? I, my first girlfriend, I, I think I called her mom because I wanted to give her a tape of Purple Rain, but I was like, hey, I'm gonna give you this your daughter this tape for her birthday but I, I also want you to know that it has questionable lyrics and she right. was like well what do you mean and I said oh hold on I'll read it to you I met her in a hotel lobby masturbating with a magazine and then of course I hear her as soon as I said masturbating with a magazine I, she like the phone goes you know she's like aiming trying to aim for you know to hang it up and then the next morning I'm on my way to school thinking okay this will be cool I'm gonna see my girlfriend and uh, you know the cops are there and they, they call me into the principal's office and she's like, are you okay at home? Is everything, are you being abused? Oh my God, that was just wonderful. And I was like, okay, so I can really do something with this. Like this is, um, when my dad had played the Michael Jackson, you know, year and a half before, and he and his, you know, new wife, and they were conflicted with their own like fascination with pop culture, knowing that it was satanic and of the world and all that. And, you know, they were moral Christians that had racism baked into their form of Southern baptism. But right, right. when they were rewinding to learn, you know, the magic incredibleness of Michael Jackson, they were studying the lyrics, but they right. were trying to study the lyrics so that I wouldn't catch on to what was going on in the song. Like, you know, the kid is not my son. And that intrigued me so much because I was like, why are they trying to hide this shit? What is going on? What is behind that? Because, you know, I was eight and they didn't want to tell me that, you know, when a man loves a woman and they get together on a, you know. Right. After the disco round, they go home and fuck. And then, you know, maybe there's a kid that comes out. So I was like intrigued. And then again, when I found Prince, it was like, wait, wait, wait. No, 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 no. I'm on to you motherfuckers. And this guy 
has laid it bare, okay? And I mean, honestly, at the time, it was the only music that made sense after having discovered my stepdad's dirty magazine collection with my stepbrother. <laughs> I discovered Prince, the libidinal side of the world and the sort of adult secrets that I was now you know, I had power over. Right. My aunt on my mom's side, who is a complete progressive freak, took me to the record store and said, honey, what do you want to get? Right. And I went right for the print section and I pulled out Dirty Mind because I had heard about it by then. And I could feel my like heart beating in my mouth just as right. I was purchasing it. And so to imagine that at my age, and my mom, you know, my father was like, burn those albums. <laughs> to, to imagine that you were front row. It's like, yeah. God damn it. Yeah. I don't know whether I love you or hate you at this point. <laughs> and, oh. and, yeah, and, and you know, it's, I guess for me, it's one of those things where the sensuality mm. of the work, I guess that was like third or fourth down the road for me. And this is, I guess, the progressive nature of my parents. Mm. Like, cause, cause my mother and father were really interested in that. They were as opposite as opposite could be. Like my father dedicated his life to activism and you know in the streets and, and change that way. My mother yeah, was much yeah. more, even though she was in education, she was gonna create change by impacting curriculum policy. Right. One right. of the things that she realized was that, you know, a lot of black children get placed into special education. And it's not that they really need to be in there. They need some services, but they can get into regular classrooms. So she was this champion of mainstreaming as many children as you could back into regular classes, right? She was a very conservative Christian type. And I remember having Dirty Mind, and I remember my mother looked at it, and I just kept waiting. I'm like, yeah, come on, come on, come on. Hey, <laughs> you know, stay some, right? She said, let me ask you a question. I said, why? She said, why do you think the effeminate black man appears to so many white people. And I went, hey, what the hell? That's that's not the conversation I work for. Uh, uh, what the hell? Uh, uh, and so... <laughs> she blew your mind. Yeah, because like, I knew that my mm. pop would have this discussion, but not going to church and it, right? You know, and oh, so, man. So for me, art was always taken in this kind of social political matrix where me getting in the press in the same way with you, but just not the sexual part was that it was really about just how does one define oneself individually? Prince was a genius in that while people before him, right, Chuck Berry and Lil Richard, sure. would create objects to be metaphors for sex and sexuality. Prince was reversing it so that sex and sexuality was becoming a metaphor for studying human neurosis. <sighs> you look at a song like Little Red Corvette, which by all accounts, like one journalist called it the, the horniest song of all time. Of course. But if you really study Little Red Corvette, and it's that, but it's also a study in the heterosexual male schizophrenia. Because one thing about heterosexual males, and me being one, we don't know half the time if we want to sex a female or save it. So if you think about the lyric of Lil Red Corvette, the beginning of the lyric is basically he said, hey, baby girl, you out here too fast. You need to slow down. You know, you're going to run yourself down. You're the kind of person that believes in making out once, love them and leave them fast. And then when you get to that third course, he only wants her to slow down so he can drive. Now move over, baby. Give me the keys. I'm going to try to tame you. 
So was, what was his intentions of getting her to slow down? <laughs> and then take that and connect that to, to Lady Cab Drive. Oh my God. If you listen to the lyrics, and what a lot of people don't do is. Oh, the lyrics are the greatest. That's my favorite part of that album. He's telling you that the person in this car having sex is because sex is a way that people escape. So sex it's is a tool of escaping power. Absolutely. So the sex is being had, and then once they get to the actual sexual scene, this is, this is who I wasn't born like my brother. That's the tall, right? This is for politicians, right? Who were born to be in the war, right? This is for the rich, not all of them, just the greedy. The ones that don't know how to kick, right? All of this sex he's having is the only way that he can express his social political discontent. That's what Dirty Mind was about. Dirty Mind was about the youth of the 80s, right? When you get to 1980, right? Think about what happens when you get to 1980. There is no Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, right? No. The NAACP is not as seen as active. There's no core. The Nation of Islam is not as active, right? So for, for young people of the, the early 80s, it becomes from a very collective movement to a very individualized movement where their body becomes the only thing to which they have self-expression. Disco, yeah, baby. Cocaine oh. and, and what, it's all about me, right? Yeah. Yeah. But, but, but in that all about me, what gets mm. missed is the all about me is also about how am I navigating my individuality through this capitalistic machine that George Clinton tells us is young. Mm. And so the Dirty Mind album, think about Party Up. Prince is writing an anti-war song in 1980 when there's really no quote war movement. That's right. So it's not just that it's an anti-war song, it's really an anti-old rich people song. Right? It's an anti-old politician song, right? They get mashed potatoes and steak, we get ice cream, no cake, all lies, no truth. We just had to give you the youth, yeah. So what Dirty Mind does, right, going back to Lady Cab Drive on 1999, Dirty Mind is basically the seminal album for individualized politics, expressing oneself through the body, which then breaks off into class and gender and race and everything else you want to discuss because he covers it all in that record. And then what does he do with that? He comes back with controversy. And of course, we all know what he's saying in the single controversy, sexuality. Sexuality is I'm reclaiming my body because my body is the only thing I can control. But then when you think about that, right, that, that that component of critical thinking, yes, I'm containing my body, but I'm not going to be claiming my body for mindless sex. What is he saying in sexuality? Mamas, don't let your children watch television before they know how to read. Or else all they don't know how to do is cuss, fight, and breathe. Does that sound like a dude who's just telling young people to have mindless sex? Absolutely the opposite. So he's a person that's saying, yes, we're going to reclaim our, sexu our, our sexuality, we're going to reclaim our bodies, but not just to have mindless sex, we're going to reclaim our bodies because right now though, your body is the only thing you can control and you can use your body to make whatever change in the world you want to change because you can use your body to be whatever you want to be in the world. Stand up, organize. Prince was doing what T.S. Eliot was saying. So T.S. Eliot says that the job of the artist is to learn history so that they can carve an individual niche for oneself. Mm. So Prince clearly understood the mm. collective of what he was doing. 
But he also mm-hmm. understood that he has to carve an individualized niche. And as a black person, mm-hmm. that niche is going to have to be so individualized so that I can't be locked out of white radio. So he was inspiring both of us to be individuals, to stand up for the thing in which we believe, to explore every aspect. He was just such a pie chart. Prince is a pie chart. I love that. With so many slices, it's a waste of time to try to count them. Mm. But because that pie chart has so many slices, Mm. he can inspire so many different people to be individualized, even though we are coming at different slices of the Prince pie. So let's cut that Prince pie up a little bit, Seeley. Um, because for us Fest listeners who aren't as entrenched in Prince's Purple Paisley Park as we are, um, of course, everybody knows Purple Rain released summer of 1984. I was nine. You were 14. We were both Prince disciples by that point. How did you receive the follow-up to Purple Rain? So Round the World Day comes out at 85 on 15. Because I remember I put this in a review that I wrote for uh, Artificial Age. Around the World of the Day was brilliant because what I loved about Prince's artistic integrity is that he didn't wait to see how well Purple Rain would do. He wrote Around the World in the Day immediately after finishing Purple Rain. Yep. After Purple Rain is his biggest seller. Of course, everybody's waiting on Purple Rain too, because that's what you do. That's right? it. That's and it. You, you, right, you beat a dead horse into the ground. Right? Of course, of course. And Prince gives us Around the World in the Day, and we're like, what the hell? And I remember sitting, listening to it, thinking two things. I just want to settle down and play around my baby's The first thing I was thinking is that I love this. Mm. And the second thing I thought is my favorite artist doesn't give a damn about what I do. <laughs> Like my favorite artist, the artist <laughs> yeah. that I love, could yeah. care less oh, man. Oh. about who I am, and and, and that, but that just what you want more. Yeah, like, exactly. That made me think, wow, this dude. Here is a dude who is thinking art and legacy, right? Remember what he says in the early Rolling Stone uh, article? Mm. He says that what I want is for you to be able to play all my albums back to back and they all sound different. And the problem is that there are not many artists that you can say that. Professor C. Lee McInnes, keeping it 100 on Us Fest episode three, the prophetic pop life of Prince. Okay, so after Around the World in a Day, which of course beyond the psychedelic soundscape curveballs also of course delivered raspberry beret and pop life two singles that hit the top 10 prince directs his second movie in france the quirky art film under the cherry moon which i recently rewatched. this black and white psychedelic film with much better costumes and landscapes than acting and plot let's be honest um 
It received pretty unanimous, awful reviews upon its release, but has since become somewhat of a cult classic. But I seem to remember a lot of negative reactions from black critics specifically that went beyond the, the bad acting and, and sloppy screenplay. Can you maybe elaborate a little bit on that? The problem with Under the Cherry Moon, it's not just that for many years, Prince seemed like his notion of beauty was a very Eurocentric notion of beauty. There's this one sister uh, has this brilliant article, it's tough to love Prince as a black woman. And I remember mm. writing about it. And I remember a lot of white fans and mixed fans getting upset about me writing about it. But it's not that the Christopher character, like Christopher played by Prince, spends an hour and a half chasing this white girl. That's, you know, okay. What's problematic is after he spends an hour and a half chasing this white girl, yeah. the thing that scares him straight, the thing that scares him from being a gigolo is the face of an older black woman. Wow. And, you know, even if that's a mistake, right? Even if they just weren't thinking about it, they just wanted, to, because the whole thing, like when you're a gigolo and you start sleeping with older women, because that had been part of, there's, there's a character in their name is Wellington. And so Miss Wellington is an older white woman with whom, because Chris was a gigolo, so he's sleeping with this older white woman, but of course he's falling in love with this younger girl. And so the whole thing about, do you want to be a gigolo sleeping with old women? Is that going to be your life? The problem is, even though that's the theme, that's the message, you at least have to be conscious enough to go, after chasing this white girl for an hour and 15 minutes, the face that scares you into doing right cannot be the face of an older black woman. Yeah, yeah. Many of us who've written about that have gotten lots of pushback from white fans and mixed fans because they're always injecting race where it has no place. Oh, I'm not God. injecting race where it has no place. It's right there. Prince injects colorism himself into the movie. So if you're going to inject colorism into the movie, you cannot be surprised then when these black critics call you on it. Wow. They have it both ways. So the black scholars and the black lovers of Prince were really clear about saying, hey, that was kind of messed up. But that didn't stop us from loving Prince. Yes. So art touches us in such a way. Right. That artists get a ride, right? And I'm yeah. one of those people that I pride myself on. I don't like. I don't think a person is a good person because they're a great artist. Right. Like, I don't understand that people. Go, he writes these great songs. He must be a great human being. No, he, he's skilled at that. <laughs> now the reverse is then people get mad at me because I don't necessarily give up art because somebody did something bad. And they say, well, how? and this is why I say, this is why I like being stuck. So no offense to the people in New York and LA and Chicago. No, please, please. Because those of us in the Southern, we think you famous people weird anyway. So <laughs> I don't understand why the hell you letting your child spend the night with Michael Jackson anyway. You don't know Michael Jackson? <laughs> I mean, I'm just trying to understand. <laughs> see, I can see myself, right? And again, now I'm the dude who daddy took him to see Prince Open from Regained the team. Right? So I, I don't have much leeway in this for latitude. But I can just imagine it asking my mama, Mama, you think I can go spend the night in Michael Jackson? Hell no. I don't know him like that. You can't stay with Joe, Jackie, Jermaine, none of them, baby. Oh, and by the way, pick me a, a copy of Thriller 2 on the way home. That album is the bomb, but your ass can't spend the night with Michael Jackson. No, hell no. Yes! I mean... And with the MJ references, C. Lee, clearly we are deep in the rabbit hole of the 80s. So before we move past uh, this decade with our Prince lens, 
Let's revisit the lyrics of one of the most sexually ambiguous tracks on Prince's magnum opus, 1987's Sign of the Times, which of course the Prince estate just remastered and reissued, whose title alone suggests some sexual ambiguity if I was your girlfriend. I'm always having a debate about if I was your girlfriend because a lot of times people are debating and he's like, well, Prince is really playing with gender. Not if you listen to the lyrics, he's not. Because mm -hmm. if you listen to the lyric, he's saying that if I was your girlfriend, if I was your one and only friend, would you come to me if somebody hurt you? Even if that somebody was me. That's a heterosexual male talking to a heterosexual female. That's a heterosexual male saying to a heterosexual female, Please. I understand that what's hurting this relationship is that we've been taught to communicate as gender and not as human beings. I understand that as a heterosexual male, right, I talk to my boys before I talk to my woman. And you talk to your girls before you talk to your man. Because again, we've both been placed in these gender boxes. So if I was your girlfriend, is about a heterosexual male saying, I'm not going to allow this rigid defining of maleness to keep me from developing a long lasting relationship with a woman I love. Baby, can I dress you? I mean, help you pick out your clothes before we go out. The problem is too many heterosexual males Right? don't know how to truly communicate with women because we haven't been taught how to communicate with women mm. because we've been taught to communicate in a very rigid, finite way as heterosexual males. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's why somebody like Tupac could say, I love women the way Prince love women. Yeah. <laughs> I am so thankful that you're doing the work analyzing and synthesizing the music that touches all of our hearts across all people, which is music that to me, as someone who I am as shameful and I think more white, especially men, especially in the South, should be just as contrite, remorseful, horrified about the legacy, history, heritage, <laughs> reality of white supremacy as German descendants of Nazis are about the atrocities of their forebears in the Holocaust, right? Exactly. Drive down any quaint southern main street in America and you're sure to come upon a storefront, as I saw peppered all over rural Georgia, little southern heritage stores with their Confederate flags out front, right? Right. See, Lee, this is why the political is so personal and so fucking infuriating. My great-granddad was in the KKK, right? And I learned that right around the time I was eight years old, you know? Okay. Right when I learned that black people were magical people that I would end up worshiping, right? right. I learned that my great-granddad on my father's side, my paternal great-grandfather, was it basically a paramilitary, you know, Nazi. And so in Germany, descendants of Nazis have remorse and right, shame right. for the sins of their forebears, right? right? They're doing everything they can to denounce that history. Um, so I'm so glad that you're doing this work because it is the work of Prince, for, for me personally, that made me see the light and resist with all of my might, this 
heteronormative, racist, anti-culture that steamrolls actual culture. Yeah, and the problem is that it's a self-propagating... So it's one of those things where the vast majority of white people in the South wanted Mm. to hold on to the Confederacy. Well, the problem with holding on to the Confederacy, right, if you Mm. think about the Civil War, the Civil War, of course, was about slavery. Mm. But it was about slavery tied to economic system. Right. What kind of system are we going to have? Are we going to have an industrial system or are we going to have an agricultural system? Right. And the people in the South did not want to have an industrial system because that meant that you would have to give your slaves some amount of education and some amount of first class citizenship. So that wasn't going to happen. So because so many white Southerners held to the Confederacy, which means to hold to the Confederacy means to innately be against progressiveness. Mm. Right. You Mm. can't hold to the Confederacy and progress. Just doesn't work from an industrial or technological standpoint. Right. But then you you hold to the Confederacy. And Mm. and here's where I tell people why I connect white supremacy to schizophrenia. So you hold to the Confederacy, which stops you from progressing, but then you say it's the black people who keep us from progressing when it was you yourself that made the decision not to progress because you didn't want the black people to do better. So it's that type of schizophrenic thinking that's that's cyclical, right? And then what happens is that the white aristocracy, right, the the rich white people, tell the poor white people, well, black people are the reason why you can't get ahead. And unfortunately, then the poor white people believe that. It's like Dick Gregg. Dick Gregg used to have this joke. Dick Gregg would say, white people, I don't mind your racism. I just want you to make up your mind. (laughs) He said, because on Monday, white Mm. people would say, Black people are bad because they all on welfare. Mm-hmm. And then Tuesday, you will say, black people are bad because they all got jobs through affirmative action. Well, which one is it? <laughs> are we all on welfare or do we all have jobs through affirmative action? <laughs> yeah. and, and, and that's why I equate white supremacy to schizophrenia because it only a schizophrenic can hold those two ideas in their mind. That I hate black people because... They're all lazy bums, and I hate black people because they all have white men's jobs through affirmative action. And this is where my positions become a little controversial, is that, but the other side of that, I think that the mass of black people have enabled that because they rejected self-determination, they rejected a form of black nationalism to embrace integration because Mm -hmm. many of them didn't know the difference between integration and desegregation. See, what we have to understand is that what black people wanted was not integration. What they wanted was to be desegregated, right? They wanted to be treated equal under the law. The problem with ending segregation was the only way to test it was through integration. And so all of a sudden, the desegregation movement, the liberation movement, the freedom movement became the integration movement, which was not what black people wanted. But because so many black people who were self-determined prior to the quote integration movement basically have enabled the white supremacist mentality because as King said, not only did he integrate his people into a burning house, black people so love this burning house that they themselves won't flee. Mm. The conversation I'm having in the black community is asking black people, do you know the difference between integration and desegregation? One, do you know that what black people wanted was desegregation, not integration. And then three, how do you think you're going to get free if you're always asking your oppressor to liberate you? Mm. 
that's what I discussed with Prince, how Prince moves from assimilationist to self-determination so that by the time he's given the concert in Baltimore for Freddie Gray, he's saying, look, the next time I come to Baltimore, I want to play in a stadium owned by you and I want to live in a hotel owned by you. Mm -hmm. Baltimore. So he's saying to the black citizens of Baltimore, one of the ways we deal with this is that you have to stop asking your oppressors to be nice to you. You have to start taking the resources that you have and using those resources to develop your own sovereignty. That's a discussion that really has not, and as much as I love King, and I, and I, and I tell people, I'm, you know, sure. this is not a shot at King, yeah. yep. but even in his book, Where Do We Go From Here? King said that one of his biggest mistakes was rejecting just the terminology of black power because he was worried how it was gonna impact white people. So King has been clear, he said, I wasn't rejecting black power because it was a bad concept. I was rejecting black power because I thought it was going to scare white people. It's like King feared that embracing the label black power would sour too many white allies, just as a lot of mainstream boomer dems today fear embracing democratic socialism, even though they support it, as long as it's not called socialism. Exactly. Okay, so that brings us to the question then, how can I, as a Prince disciple, who's carrying on the full evolution of Prince's legacy, you know, from Paisley Park, mythic, non-racial melting pot <laughs> into a black nationalist, and how can we, right, white progressives, do better this time with our part in this current civil rights movement than white people who King was afraid he would alienate <laughs> had he embraced the label black power uh, back in the 60s today. Like, how can we be sure as white allies that we are not inevitably becoming uh, Karen 2.0s or repeating the same or, or similar mistakes that white allies made in the 60s and 70s civil rights movements? Let's look at Snake for a second, right? Seeley, can you go back and just, for people that don't know what SNCC is, what so does SNCC, it stand right, for? The Student Nonviolent Coordinated Committee, right? And, and what time period are we talking here? Uh, so we're going, I think 66 through 68 would be the prime moments okay. of SNCC. SNCC has a manifesto, and the title of it is, What Did It Profit a Man to Gain the Vote and Lose His Soul? So the whole <laughs> point of SNCC was, yes, we're going to get white folks in to come help mobilize. Right. But the whole point of it was eventually what's going to happen is we're, they're going to be training those white people, too. So that at some point, black people will raise their own leadership and then white people will then those white people who have been trained in SNCC will then return to their white neighborhoods and organize in their white neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. When it came time to do this, and it was mostly the northern whites that were in SNCC were appalled. They were like, hey, y'all sending us to these white neighborhoods to organize, this will get us killed. Well, what do you think the hell had been happening to black people to all this time? Mm. And not just black people, right? Because we got to talk about goodness, one and Cheney. So it wasn't just black people. But for then these, these Northern whites to say, well, hey, you know, we like organizing in the black community. We don't think it's safe to go organize in the white community. That shows a mentality that maybe even some of those, quote, good intention white people hadn't even overcome some of their own prejudice that of course. They, they're not just interested in working in the movement. Mm -hmm. They feel that black people have to be led always by a white liberal hand. 
Ah. And so that's that mentality. Uh, and I hate the title for it because I just never thought the title fit. The title for a liberal white person who thought they should always be in control of a black person, the title of it was called a John Brown mentality. And <laughs> I always hated that because that was not who John Brown was. Right. You know, if you know the history. Right. So John Brown, but I just kind of, okay, I get it because, you know, John, mm -hmm. John no. Brown. He, makes makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and John Brown had actually criticized Frederick Douglass for not being militant enough. And, you know, Fred, if you really want to help, Let's go get some of these slave ships. And Fred was like, "No, nah, brother, that ain't what I do. I do, I do this over here. I don't, I don't, I don't hijack slave ships, player. That's see, this fro don't do that. This fro in this suit don't hijack slave ships. I'm gonna do it another way." So, in a lot of cases, we really haven't had a conversation in the white community about what freedom is and should look like for black people. And the reason we understand this is because the reason the Civil Rights Act of '64 is so important. Is because even though you had the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, the Civil Rights Act of 64 was the first time that Black people were actually crafting what their freedom was. He was not, never had been in favor of setting our people free. In the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, those were all white people telling Black people what their freedom was. If it wasn't, for the 13th Amendment, yes, sir. It would have been born in slavery. And so just getting a mass of white people to even just think consciously about that, right? To think, okay, do I have, again, I hate this term, but do I have a John Brown mentality where right. I say I'm for the liberation of black people? But am I really just, I want them to have freedom to a certain point? Abraham Lincoln was a racist. Oh, yes, sir. You said you cannot escape from history. And I don't think that we've ever had that real conversation between black folk and white progressives. Mm -hmm. And then the other step of that is added to that and then having black people have the conversation about, can we really have a discussion about freedom if that discussion doesn't entail black people taking control of their own institutions? Because one of the problems that we will always have is as long as black people's only hope is to ask white people to be fair to them inside of white controlled institutions, are you really free? As long as black people have to ask white people, is it okay for them to do something? Then black people can never do anything in their own best interest. And that goes back to the Martin Luther King reason for rejecting the term, just rejecting the term black power. Do you wanna dance? He didn't reject the term black power because he thought it was a bad concept. He mm. rejected the term black power because he thought it would scare white folks. Mm. So here you miss an opportunity to have a real conversation about sovereignty. That was the point was that with the King thing is that as long as we are not having a conversation about sovereignty, as long as we have to keep asking white folks, is it okay for us to do something in our neighborhood? You're never free.
Brilliant. Coming back to our discussion about Prince, right? That's what Prince is doing. Like, so when you read, when you hear a song like Black Muse. Black Muse, can I talk to you? What I got to share is mighty good news. You know, he's basically saying that we're going to be cool because we can build our own community. You and me know what to do. That's a different Prince there. And, and not a, not a forgetting that, right? So if you go back, say, you know, Uptown, right? White, Black. Puerto Rican, everybody just a freaking. Sure. You get that prince, and then next thing you know, you got the rainbow children. Just like the sun, rainbow children rise. Well, he's talking really about self-determination mm-hmm. and, and saying that, hey, to create this Paisley Park world, to create this multicultural sure. world, black people's specific issues have to be addressed. Mm. And that one album almost destroyed Prince.org, which is the largest fan website for Prince. Wow. That album, it so divided Prince fans by race. Wow. It's not like these things kind of appeared out the blue, right? I would say, and what I argue with is that Prince's come to Jesus moment was when he realized that he was only an object to Warner Brothers and that he would never be as big as what he saw his white counterparts, right? And, and there's some other side because, you know, it was also about money and contract and all that. So I don't want to make like Princeton like sure. his peer, right? But you know, money is a part of politics, right? Yeah, absolutely. So it started there and it just began to germinate from 93, you know, the rest of his life after that. Rainbow Children on. He is full steam ahead of, I need to be working in whatever way I can to ensure some form of sovereignty for black people. Okay then, Professor McInnes. How do we become then these rainbow children we know we can be in this Paisley Park future utopian America? We have to, and I don't know how we do it. This is what kind of drives white supremacy, but it also is what drives just greed in general. They're um, they're interrelated for sure, yeah. We have to find a way to remove the narrative that my success depends on your defeat. If you look specifically, you know, holding on to the Confederacy, right? Mm. The vast majority of white Southerners, right? And people say, why do you say the vast majority of white Southerners? I said, look at how they vote. Yeah, how they vote, especially in your state, is uh, painfully problematic to the future that you and I want to see emerge. Um, but thankfully, just this year, in June, the Mississippi House and Senate is is finally voting to remove the Confederate battle emblem from your state flag there. I, you know, quite begrudgingly, of course, after what was it, just under 20 years ago, two-thirds of Mississippians voted to keep that indelible stain on your flag. And I mean, even though it's somewhat good news that it's going to be changed this year, that white supremacist sentiment that that flag represents, I saw all over rural Georgia when we stayed down there earlier this year, these so-called Southern Heritage storefronts with these huge Confederate flag billboards are just everywhere. Like, I don't know how you keep your sanity, brother. That's what happened. When they voted for the Confederate flag in the state of Mississippi, 90% of white people voted for the Confederate flag. So we know that. And we know then that 90% of the white people in the state of Mississippi believe 
that in order for them to survive, their survival success is based in the defeat of black people, the subjugation of black people. Yeah, again, just like Germany had re-education camps, you know, we need them here all across the South, at least to start. And that's the only way that we change ultimately the fundamental flaw in the society is you educate enough people that actually somebody's success means that you, you've helped somebody who could later help you. Rather than if I help that person, they're going to take my job. If I help that person, they're going to replace me. Is it as simple as, you know, reinvesting in education and some educational reform that gets us there? Or I don't know 100% how you do it because that's all connected to fear. As you know, fear and ignorance create this deadly cycle. God. And so, but that's really, we, how do we, either through K-12 through curriculum, through whatever we're doing, if we could fundamentally get people to understand that just because this person is properly educated, is properly fed, just because this person has all of the resources to live a constructive life doesn't mean that, that something, something bad, bad is going to happen to me. Right. Exactly. Right. <laughs> and, and, and how do we get at teaching people that learning that, that's one of the million dollars. Because what drives white supremacy, what drives racism is the fear, partly the fear of, these people will destroy how I want to live mm. if I allow them equal access. So basically that age-old question going back to the Gospels about how to eradicate fear and replace it with love. <laughs> oh, what a radical riddle they've never seemed to resolve in the South. <laughs> Even though, you know, consistent Republican voters like my dad have been attending their deep dive Bible study courses for, I don't know, their 50, 60 years, his whole life. <laughs> Maybe that prosperity gospel Bible, you know, takes out the Beatitudes. <laughs> anyway, on to the mission of Usfest, Seeley. Uh, I'd like to get your pulse on it. Right. As someone raised by, you know, parents who instilled in you love and respect for both literature and music, as somebody whose own poetic and professional work lifts up and recognizes the sacrosanct gift African-American artists generally, and Prince specifically, have bestowed upon the world for a hundred years, since you so intimately know and can so eloquently testify to music's power to transform people, both spiritually and libidinally, from the fucking right. time you, you know, before you hit puberty, right? <laughs> like, and I guess this goes back to your realization of, okay, outside of the books, the thing that kind of connects people and unifies people is, is the power of music. And, and what I've seen that gives me hope is kind of, see, my whole thing was when Trump became president, I, I've been nervous the whole time that he might take the mantle of cool, right? right. Which is why I really freaked out when I saw Kanye. Cause right. I was like, oh shit, this is gonna, People are going to see Trump as the punk rock, you know, wow, superstar, right? And if he takes the mantle of cool, then that means he, he fucking lures the next generation into the end of, you know, humanity, right? But the one thing that I, you know, my favorite music festival is Afropunk, the love that I'm yeah, yeah. given by, yeah. by being there, yeah. by everybody there is just like, okay, this is the community that I want to encourage, you know, right. that I want to right. build. And comparing that to like Coachella, which is just yeah. kind of blissful, like, oh, everybody wears flowers in their hair and there's no real purpose, but 
But still, the artists that play there are unified, progressive. They want the future. Both places, because you know it's the same circuit and it's the same bands and rappers and everything and DJs. But as sort of a parting, because I gotta let you go because you've been amazing and you're. I can't oh, thank you for for your time. This is amazing. Just thank you for having me, man. I appreciate. No, this isn't. This is incredible. But do you see any hope? Beyond education and the hope of the unified psychedelic spirit that those events tend to encourage in people that maybe come from a racist background, but then go to a music festival and see that actually, oh my God, okay, these people aren't these subhuman freaks that my inbred parents told me they were and I can actually actually have a good time with them and they're do you see any hope in that I think that it can be supplemental yeah and the reason I say it can be supplemental I'm like you like you know I I, I see the transformative power of music you and I we keep in our circle the reason I say only supplemental because the one thing that we do have as a part of the history of white supremacy in America is mm. the ability of white viewers to objectify mm. black artists. Yeah. So we let's don't forget that mm. uh, that a lot of times white receivers of black art are living vicariously through the art. Yeah. So that while they're living vicariously through the art, they may be enjoying the art, but they may not be making as human a connection that maybe you or somebody else made. Right. Again, for a lot of white fans, Prince was just basically the erotic myth child, right? Mm. And so he wasn't a real person. So I say that the music and the festivals, it can be a supplement to that. But I think that in order for it to be as powerful as it can be, yes. those people coming to those festivals have to be some kind of way have seeds laid into them. Mm. That they are ready to see the wholeness of the artist and not just the artist as something that dispenses something that's pleasant to them. Absolutely. How do we do that, C. Lee? Does it come from the message of the, like you need to be pouring your wisdom and, and Cornell West needs to be pouring the wisdom into the artist to kind of- Well, I think that's across the board. That's why I like, right? that, I like, that, I like that book yeah. by Yvonne Bino, Stand and Deliver. Like that's what she's saying in Stand and Deliver. So mm. that even if the artist is getting it, it doesn't make any difference if the people receiving the art also don't have those seeds in them as well. It's a K through 12 and it's a parenting thing. Children for better or for worse are a reflection of their parents. And the reason I say that is, if you think about the apex of the civil rights movement, right? Say 55 to 75. And I like using apex because apex informs that that was something happening before 1955 right or mm. before Emmett Till right and before Brown right. versus the board right I, the folks who led the freedom summit and all of that mm. by and large the parents that produced these civil rights movies and shakers on average had an eighth ninth grade education so I always ask myself how do they produce the children that change the world there was something even more than formal education Yes. That these parents who birthed these babies, who from 55 to 75 changed the face of not just America, changed the face of the world. And what is it about those parents that produced those children, that gave those children whatever it is they needed? And what was great was that, think about the generation schism. 
right? They didn't always agree with what their children were doing in the movement, but they had poured something, they had poured enough into their children that even though their children were making change in a way that their parents wouldn't have made change, their parents had poured enough into them to make change regardless. Message to the parents. <laughs> yeah. And so that's so it's a twelve, uh. it's a parenting thing, and it's also incumbent upon African Americans to begin thinking about sovereign institutions so that they're not always begging the mass of white people to do for them. When you can come to the table with I wanna do business with you, but I don't have to do business with you, yeah, then things become more equal. As long as black people are continuing to go to the table with our head in our hand. Uh, one of the things we talked about, like black power, the other thing out of black power that, that we've never addressed in a way that needs to be addressed in the black mm. community is the lingering virus of self-hatred. Mm. Self-hatred is the number one impediment to self-determination. Mm. If I don't love myself, if I don't value myself, then I don't love and value or believe that I can then sustain an institution. I have to tell you that from somebody on the receiving end of the culture that inspired me to even question the sort of rotten white supremacist right. yeah, culture that, that I was somehow <laughs> delineated from, I always saw Prince as not just as a sexual imp, pervert, weirdo guy. I saw him as the ideal man, right? To, to me, Prince was, I could never be that great. But what do I, as somebody who wants nothing more than to destroy the corrupt, rotten nightmare of white supremacy that is arm in arm with the destruction of the planet and capitalism and everything else, what, what do I do within my family and community to create the world that you're aiming to create? All I'm doing is starting a podcast. Like, what else should I be doing? What else should people like me be doing who want to see universal equality and who want to see black sovereignty uh, manifest. Uh, I would say that first and foremost, don't see your podcast as just a podcast. See it as this is one of the ways. Like remember we talked about that pie chart with Prince. This is one of the slices mm -hmm. of your pie chart mm -hmm. that's gonna help you create the world that you wanna see. And then the other thing is always thinking about in what way can we make sure that everybody has a fair and equal chance. Amen. And then the other thing, taking that SNCC model. So that SNCC model of mm. you being right, a, a, a white person is having the discussion with other white people, which it sounds like to me that you're doing and finding those innovative, creative ways. Right? I love having discussions with both black and white Christians. I was, I was raised Christian. I, mm. I, I basically identify as Christian. I love. And so yeah. when people tell me, they say, well, Celia McKinnis, you can't possibly be Christian and you're talking about this black nationalism. So like, well, that's how I am, but I've read Matthew chapter 18, verse 16. <laughs> right? Which is, which is. Right? It literally lays out how you deal with somebody with whom you disagree. Mm -hmm. And what I love about it is it gives you three steps, right? The first step is you go to that person. So if I got a problem with Brian, I go to Brian. Right. And I said, Brian, hey, man, you harmed me in some way. Let's talk about it. And then it says that if Brian is not available, I go get a mutual friend, somebody that both you and I respect. And if Brian is not willing to hear that person, I take Brian to the church. <laughs> and then after Brian is not hearing from the church, what I love is then it says that you treat Brian like you treat a tax collector. 
And if you look at the history of America, black people have followed that step by step. Mm. There's not any white person in America who can truly claim ignorance to the evils and the lingering evils that exist. So me deciding to separate myself from an evil person, I say to those black and white Christians, Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, mm. say that's what you should do when that evil person is not willing to change from their wicked way. Mm. Now, I don't hate you. So let's go back to the me and you said, I don't hate Brian. I don't talk about Brian. I don't, I'm not, no. Just Brian was not able to mend his wicked ways. Therefore, I treat him like a tax collector and I part with him in love. I wish I could feel that way about one of my uncles who I kind of wish COVID would take really quickly so he couldn't, can't vote in November. But as we veer dangerously close into sort of a double disc sign of the times sort of dimensionality to this podcast, before we go, I wanted to mention one more time this amazing Black Magnolia's special Prince edition, again, for that naughty or nice Prince fanatic who wants to take their Prince fandom to that extra level this Christmas and or Kwanzaa and or Hanukkah or winter solstice. Uh, how do they find this amazing uh, Prince special edition of Black Magnolia's? People can go to the website. They go to Psychedelic Literature. Just click on Black Magnolia's as the magazine. It'll take you right to the special issue. And even the cover of this issue is brilliant. Um, it's just this beautiful collage of the many faces and personas of Prince grafted over the African continent. So I got to say, it is T-shirt worthy and alone is is worth the, the 19 bucks. Uh, I'd be a props to my wife. Oh, wow. Indeed. Uh, kudos to your wife then. That's Monica Taylor McKinnon. I can't take no credit for that. Oh, wow. Okay, so not only the Prince discipleship, but the black excellence runs deep in your family. Um, so yes, kudos, Monica. Um, uh, so see, Lee, no, thank, I, you. I, I, I oh. thank you. I thank you so much, man. And, and, and for me, just as a poet and a short story writer, you know, all I want to do is create work that I hope makes people think. I think that if we really refocus on just teaching young people how to think critically, mm. not pass tests, not left versus right, Republican, Democrat, if we truly wanted to change the world, we would just say, what are the best curriculum to make young people think critically? We would transform the world and get what we want. So I just appreciate you having me on. I've enjoyed our discussion, man. And, and look, just much success. But like I say, it's not a, a little podcast. This is your way of informing people and adding to the critical discourse by all the people you're going to have on here. You're amazing. Thank you so much. And uh, and I have to give uh, props, of course, to uh, the gentleman that introduced me to this uh, larger-than-life figure that you are, uh, Christopher Ian Foster, who you called the Dr. Foster, we, saw, yeah, we, we loved him at Jackson State. We uh, hate to see him go. Uh, yes. If you guys want some good reading? Go get Conscripts of Migration, Conscripts of Migration, Neoliberal Globalization, Nationalism, and the Literature of New African Diasporas, Christopher Ian Foster. It is an excellent book. So yeah, I'm glad that Doc Foster connected us and we continue doing this. Professor C. Lee McInnes, you are always welcome back to Us Fest. You'll always have a front row seat and always be invited up on the stage to please share with us your brilliance anytime you want. And hopefully, Dr. Foster can clear away some time on his calendar to join us for his insights and some of the brilliant work he's focused on. 
to save us from fascist annihilation. Hey, if you're an Us Fest listener who has not yet subscribed or written us a review or just given us five stars on Apple Music yet, please do that. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and uh, and let us know what you think. We're everywhere. Podcasts can be through anchor.fm. So thank you again, Professor McGinnis. We'll have Purple Rain play us out. Thank you, man. Y'all take care and you and your wife and everybody be well. All right, man. Thanks so much. All right, bro. Peace out.